to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We live now in an age where technology has revolutionized our ability to capture images of our world by putting a cell phone camera in almost everyone's pocket. From the 1840s through the Civil War, another technological revolution took place when photography first made it possible for ordinary people, not just artists, to record visual images of their worlds. Our guest tonight, Matthew Fox Amato, reveals the political and social impact of this revolution on slaves, slaveholders, and soldiers in his book, Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America. We'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a pleasant September evening in 2019, uh, approaching the actual date of the 15th anniversary of the show as we start season number 16 here. Uh, I'm in... The Brewster Building, third floor, Office A320, on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university or its football team or women's soccer team or any other subset of the university, just for myself uh, and my guest. I know will likewise speak only for himself tonight. Uh, Well, it is football season here on campus and the 
Pirates uh, won their game this past week. Uh, they played and defeated both William and Mary, nineteen to seven, in a, a close match against the FCS team, what used to be called Division Two, smaller schools. Some of the fan base is complaining about the closeness of the score, barely beating an FCS team. Uh, it shows how short memories are because uh, ECU lost to FCS teams the last two years, uh, and now we've beaten two of them this year. So, in my view, the Pirate Club boosters who are complaining about uh, the smallness of victory margin need to shut their yaps and uh, enjoy the victory uh, while it's happening. Next week, we play Old Dominion, a uh, whatever the next level is, the Old Division One, uh, the bowl team's uh, uh, league, so uh, things may get worse quickly. We should enjoy what we have while we have it, uh, as we do here on Civil War Talk Radio, enjoying the opportunity to visit Civil War battlefields, for example. Uh, May of 2020 is not too far away, not too early to be thinking about Coming along on one of the Civil War tours offered by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, I will be leading two of them this year as our good friend uh, Jack Mountcastle, General Mountcastle, is uh, reducing his uh, activity with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, and so I picked up an extra tour this year as an exception, and uh, hope that more of you can join. It's always a pleasure. I heard recently from... Uh, people who've been on the last few tours, it's always good to stay in touch and, and hope you can join us for that. Uh, likewise, the Civil War Institute follows that in June of 2020 at Gettysburg College. Uh, discount for Civil War talk radio listeners. It's, it's a great event. You don't want to miss it. If you're not going anywhere, stay home and listen to Civil War talk radio. We have, uh, as always, good shows coming up in the future. Jim Brumall will be our guest next week with a very interesting new book, Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. Uh, The rest of October keeps us, uh, well, not all in the South. Uh, On October 9th, Joe Goodbody writes about Parker H. French, a man uh, known as the Kentucky Barracuda, and we'll find out why. On the 16th of October, Hampton Newsom returns to the show. Uh, his new book is about the war in North Carolina in 1864. It's called The Fight for the Old North State. And uh, I've always enjoyed his work and look forward to reading this one. On the 23rd of October, S.C. Gwynn has a new book, Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. And on the 30th, we will bring back uh, Kevin M. Levin, who has written Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Definitely uh, a timely book and uh, certainly one that will that uh, has already annoyed some people who cling to the myth. In addition, we'll be talking about the, uh, the, the dust-up that has occurred on social media regarding Kevin and his website, I'm sorry, and his, his uh, blog uh, in the pages of the journal Civil War History, published by Kent State University, but I'll wait till he's on the show and we'll, we'll talk to him about that uh, just about a month from now. Uh, and looking a little bit further forward, in November, uh, November 6th, John Grady 
has a biography of Matthew Fontaine Maury, the father of oceanography and also a Confederate naval officer. So we'll learn about his multiple careers. And on the 13th, we return to North Carolina with Philip Girard in his book, The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina. So lots coming up on the show. I uh, hope you can join us for all of it. You can always find out what's happening at www.impedimentsofwar.org. You can go to the Facebook page, Impediments of War. Mark Gaffney keeps all of these going. And at the website, you can also contribute to Civil War Talk Radio. Your donations are very welcome. They are used, uh, they are, are amusingly titled the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, uh, but in fact can be used for anything, books included, uh, but they represent a, a show of support that I value very highly, far more than the monetary value. So if you feel you can uh, make a recurring donation, and if you click on the, the PayPal button, it's very easy to do, of even a few dollars a month. If you get a dollar's worth of value from listening to a show, uh, you know, click on you know, $5 a month. By the time PayPal takes their cut, I, I get a little more than $4 after that. Uh, and uh, it, it helps reassure me and helps me reassure my uh, administrators here at ECU that, that it's worth the time I spend uh, to uh, produce these shows. And I certainly do enjoy doing them and hope we can continue. Tonight we have a visual book, uh, always a challenge in the medium of podcasting, but it is a book about photographs from the Civil War and antebellum era, uh, many of which you will recognize, you will, you will have seen elsewhere as we discuss them, but uh, others you may want to look up as, as we go. The book is called Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America. And the topic explains what it's about, but doesn't quite do justice to the, uh, uh, what's the right word? I'm tempted to say complexity of the argument because complexity is considered a, a praise word in academia, whereas in ordinary life, people tend to value uh, simplicity, elegance, directness over complexity for its own sake. And uh, I don't want, so I don't want to say this is a, a complex book in a negative way. Uh, it is, I think, a very enlightening and uh, eye-opening book that takes a new look at traditional photographs. But I'm not the one who should be talking about it. We should be talking with the author, Matthew Fox Amato, uh, and welcome him to the show. Professor Fox Amato, are you there? I'm here. It's nice to be here. Welcome to the show. Hope uh, all is well wherever you are. Yeah, thank you very much. So, uh, you are, uh, you and I have corresponded a bit, uh, but not met, I don't think, at any conferences. I'm sure that will change over time. Um, do, do you go by uh, Matthew? Matt uh, is... is uh, Matt, Matthew or Matt both work. Matt is shorter and simpler, so maybe we could just go with that. Okay, and please call me Jerry. That will yeah. keep things moving along briskly. Um, Sounds great. Well, first thing I want to say is a, a quick apology for last week. Uh, you were very gracious in... 
recognizing that I had made a mistake in double booking last week's show uh, when we talked to Jack Dempsey about Alpheus Williams, uh, the, the general from Michigan, and I had inadvertently uh, put his name uh, for last week and yours for this week, but somehow communicated it incorrectly to you and, and uh, people you're working with. So I really appreciate your willingness to switch to this week and uh, make this possible. And again, I'm sorry that happened. Uh, moving forward, the uh, tell me about your day job. What do you do when you're not uh, talking on Civil War Talk Radio? Sure. I am a professor. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Idaho. I teach in the history department there. I've been there for four years at this point, and I teach a variety of American history courses, colonial and 19th century America. I teach uh, um, the first half of the U.S. survey to the Civil War and Reconstruction, and then I also teach a few classes on visual culture and race ethnicity, and these should be, in some ways, no surprises. That's kind of Kind of, kind of where my book sits at the intersection of history, race, and ethnicity, and visual culture. So I teach a course on basically the role that photography has played in shaping American politics from the mid-19th century to the present. I teach a course on race and ethnicity through the ages, and uh, probably starting next year, a course on the Civil War era. So that keeps me pretty busy. And that is that's a, a, a very broad course load. The uh, does it leave you time to uh, work on whatever your next project might be, or to prepare for the the? Uh, and I apologize for even raising the issue. The the uh, tenure uh, application. It does. Yeah, I do have some time to research, and you know, I, my research, broadly speaking, is about the relationship between politics and culture. And as is evident from my book, I'm really interested in the role that images play in shaping public life as well as private life. And so I do have time to research. Um, and thankfully, this semester, I'm actually on leave. We have a, quite a great deal in my department where we pass our third-year review, and then we get a semester off from teaching. So it's come at, a, at the ideal time, really, for me to transition from this first book that was published in April uh, to start working on new projects this fall. Wow. Well, that, that fills me with envy. Here at East Carolina, we are not allowed to use the, the S word, uh, sabbatical. There, I've said it. Um, it. The taxpayers will not go for it at this university. Yeah. Uh, my, my, the chair of the department when I came in, Mike Palmer, uh, was able to get around that. He would find a way to give new professors a semester free of teaching to work on their uh, mm. next research project. And the, the Palmer semester survived into uh, the years when I became chair, and, and I continued to do it. And finally, the administration caught on and cracked down yeah. on that. Even, even though we were funding yeah. it ourselves with buyouts, it didn't matter. Uh -huh. It was just the principle yeah. of the thing. If you're not teaching, you're not working, is how the legislators see yeah. it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, that's why I Everyone I talk to now, I say, I'm not teaching, but there are still expectations for this semester. And, of course, there are oh, yes. in terms of my research. And uh, my suspicion, I'm not entirely sure, my suspicion was this was initially started as something for people to finish their first book. But given the way the job market is now, I was on two postdocs before I was on the tenure track. And so mm -hmm. my book was in some ways further along 
um, than it would have been otherwise when I was using this semester to really put the finishing touches on that first book. Yeah, I think more and more people are, are getting that the first tenure track job when that does happen uh, with a book already in hand yeah. or very close to it. Uh, that was certainly yeah. my experience yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So we're talking uh, inside baseball here about the, the world of the, the history professor, and I'm doing it partly because I'm just delighted to be talking to uh, uh, someone who, who beat the system, and, and you've got a tenure-track <laughs> position. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's very frustrating how difficult that has become. Yes, it's uh, incredibly competitive. There's, uh, you know, we all love this job, the level we do, and it's, mm-hmm. that's, I think, you know, the reason why it's, uh, well, one of the reasons why it's so competitive. It, it is. It, so, yeah. it, it's a rewarding job. Um, in your book, you point out that historians have not taken the approach that you've taken of, of treating images uh, as you have done to show what they reflect about both the anti-slavery debate and the the in racial relationships during the Civil War with Union soldiers. Uh, so that's what I want to come back and, and, and dive into in our, our next sure. segment. First, we'll take a short break. Uh, talking today with Matthew Fox Amato, the author of Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high energy, all access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Matthew Fox Amato. He's the author of Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America. Uh, As we mentioned at the end of the first segment, uh, this book makes the argument that there's a great deal to be learned from uh, early photography, photography in the 1840s, 50s, and the wartime era, and how these images affected both the anti-slavery debate, the institution of slavery, and the process of emancipation and racial relationships during the Civil War itself. Uh, but, uh, Matt, you point out that really no one has looked at this, at, at these images in this in this way. We're all familiar with uh, some famous photographs of slaves or of soldiers with refugees, but no one has taken your approach. Why? Why do you suppose that is? There are probably a few reasons. The first, kind of on a, a basic level, is uh, you know I'm part of a wave of historians who have grown interested in using images and photographs, in particular as actual historical evidence, as something that we can learn something from rather than simply uh, learning it elsewhere in, say, uh, letters, diaries, speeches, and then mm-hmm. using the image to simply illustrate that. And, you know, this has been happening over the past decade or two, and no one had really kind of taken that approach and turned it towards the um, history of slavery and abolition and emancipation all at once in the way that I do in this book. And I think there's another reason, and maybe I'll get to that by by telling you a little bit about how I got into this topic. Yeah, absolutely. It was both an interest in abolitionist culture Mm-hmm. and an interest in theoretical questions about what images of suffering do. And so I was really interested in Susan Sontag's work. She's written two really great books on photography and regarding the pain of others, where she's, you know, she's wondering what do, what do these images of suffering do? Do they promote empathy that perhaps leads to some further form of political engagement? Or do they on the other hand, just promote a kind of compassion fatigue and detachment. And so I was interested in that, and I was aware of certain images that the abolitionists had used. The Scourged Back, which is produced in 1863. It's one of the images I'd imagine your listeners know well. Um, mm-hmm. It's made of a fugitive slave who enters Union Army lines near Baton Rouge and turns and poses as a scarred back for the camera. And abolitionists um, uh, once that image makes its way to the north, uh, circulate that image widely. And so initially I thought, you know, this is going to be a study of abolitionist photography. It's going to be about a social movement and how that movement drew upon a new technology. But, and this is another reason I'm getting to why I think, um, you know, this, mm-hmm. this book hadn't been written before. Uh, when I was doing this, archives, I was about 2000, 9, 2010, 
archives were, I think, just beginning to digitize some of their image or had recently digitized images that, that hadn't been studied um, to any significant degree, uh, which is to say I started to just uh, begin finding um, digitized photographs of enslaved people online um, uh, from the 1840s and 1850s, studio portraits. And, you know, uh, scholars had kind of mentioned this here and there, but no one had really investigated, I think, to any significant degree what was going on with those photographs of enslaved people. So my project um, turned from one about social movement image making to thinking about photography as a cultural middle ground that was, yes, being used by abolitionists, but also being used by slaveholders, who, as it turns out, from the mid-1840s onwards, uh, were bringing enslaved people to studios and getting their pictures made. Um, as I kept doing my research, I began to find written evidence suggesting that enslaved people, too, though dramatically poor as a social class, as we know, uh, were also um, occasionally, some enslaved people were occasionally getting studio portraits made. And so that was basically, you know, how I ended up with the structure of the book that I have now. Um, and those, mm-hmm. I think, are the two, the two primary reasons why this book hadn't been written before. So now we now have sources available that weren't available or available online that were not available before, but it's also a conceptual shift. Uh, The discussion of slaveholder photos, which you you cover in your first chapter, I thought was very interesting. You you point out that in the pre-photography era, when wealthy people could have portraits painted, you do see enslaved people on the margins of them, including the famous picture of George Washington and his family. There's a, uh, a, an enslaved servant standing in the corner, uh, just visible. So it's not unheard of that such people would be pictured. But you suggest that, this, that with photography, you have actual uh, portraits of, of individual enslaved people uh, on a much larger scale than, than was previously thought. You do, and this was a really striking shift for me. I think it was brought about by the cheapness of a photographic portrait compared to a painted portrait. They're just far cheaper. Mm-hmm. As well as the um, increasingly antagonistic um, battle between um, pro-slavery proponents and the abolitionist movement in the antebellum and late antebellum era. And so you get all of these individual portraits of enslaved people in the 1840s, 50s, and through the war, uh, alongside images, these kind of interracial images, um, uh, oftentimes of an enslaved woman holding a white child. So you get you get that kind of pairing as well. And you're right, the, the individual images were the most striking ones to me. Um, that was the big shift I saw from enslaved people existing on the margins of the canvas in paintings in the 18th and early 19th century to posing right at the center of the image in early photographic portraiture. 
And so my first chapter is really trying to understand what's going on with those images. Well, and you point out there's an inherent contradiction. On the one hand, the slaveholder is having their, their so-called property posed and photographed so they can say, you know, first of all, hey, here's something expensive that I own. I've got a picture of it now. Uh, they can show it to others. They can also show here's a relatively well-dressed and well-cared-for person that I own, mm-hmm. so so I must be a, a good slaveholder. Uh, but you point out there's an inherent tension between the, the uh, commodification of the human body that is chattel slavery and the individual quality of a portrait of a human being. You can't say this is, uh, here is a $1,500 chunk of human flesh. This is a person with a name. And when you see their photograph, they have a face. They're an individual. Uh, you can't be both at the same time. Uh, how did they resolve? How did they prevent these photographs from humanizing their their property to the point where they couldn't deny it? Yeah, I'm glad you seized on that tension in this cultural dynamic because it's it's absolutely right. Slaveholders, on the one hand, are drawing upon photography to show that slavery is benevolent. They're, they're trying mm-hmm. to construct slavery visually as benevolent. We're treating our enslaved people well. Look at how well-dressed they are in this photograph. But on the other hand, they can't... So in other words, there's an elevation happening, but there's also a subordination happening because they can't um, also visualize... Um, enslaved people as uh, having full personhood that would undermine their system. And so this is the most interesting thing about these photographs, not that they're kind of, uh, they kind of uh, work hand-in-hand with pro-slavery rhetoric of the day. They absolutely do. Um, mm-hmm. But you also see in subtle ways slaveholders borrowing enslaved people um, from, from, say, some of the poses that a free white person could use in a portrait. Um, so uh, two examples. Um, from what I've seen in the archive, you don't have enslaved people posing with books, which was a kind of common symbol of literacy and intellect that you um, quite often see white women um, using. Um, you also don't see enslaved people, enslaved men uh, in particular, um, standing alone in photographs, uh, which was a way of suggesting um, stature. Um, so those are two of the kind of visual devices that they're borrowing enslaved people from um, that free people could use. Another thing that you see happening, and this is also about the kind of subordination taking place, is, is when slaveholders talk about these images, you often find a kind of condescension taking place. And I'll give you an example of that. In the mid-1850s, um, there's a, um, a guy uh, from a slaveholding family, his name's Edward Pringle, who, um, who moves to San Francisco to practice law. Uh, Pringle comes from a, um, an elite family in Charleston, a slaveholding family, uh, and he writes back to his mother in the mid-1850s and he says, Mom, thanks for sending me your photograph. You know, it looks just like you. 
as a kind of common phrasing in the antebellum era about photography. And he says, thanks especially for sending me the photograph of Mac. Mac was an enslaved butler in the Pringles Charleston townhome. And Pringle goes on and writes for a full paragraph about Mac's image. He says, I keep Mac's image in my law office in San Francisco, and I show it to everyone who comes in here. What a great representation of the institution it is. He says, Mac is better dressed than anyone in California. And then he also says, I've laughed over Mac a dozen times. So there's a kind of, when he says, I've laughed over him, uh, I interpret that as a kind of condescension about uh, Mac being uh, basically only mimicking um, what free white people are doing with photography. While you may be well-dressed, while you may be posing in some of the ways that free people pose, you could never actually inhabit that social position in real life. So this is all a way of saying that, you know, yes, on the, on the one hand, um, they are elevating enslaved people through photography, but they're also trying in different ways to undermine them. The, the idea of laughing at the, the picture of the butler, almost like, you know, putting a, a dog in a sweater, uh, yeah. and it seems humorous. I can't picture the, the, the Downton Abbey, uh, the British soldier at the front. I laughed at the photograph of our butler. Uh, yeah. No, he's a very dignified, you'd, you'd never laugh at that guy. Um, but mm. but you can laugh at an enslaved butler because it's it's... As you say, it's condescending and amusing to the the the, uh, uh, the person receiving the photograph. Now, you yeah. you talk about um, uh, enslaved people, although they're not allowed to pose in certain ways, they're not posed in certain ways by the people op- running the uh, the session, the photography session. Uh, they do yeah. have some. You point out they they. It was not unknown for enslaved people to be able to buy photographs themselves. They did often have some spending money of their own. Uh, so, so the market for photographs is not purely uh, a white market. It's not. And this, this, so this is my second chapter about enslaved people mm-hmm. using photographs. This blew me away. I was aware of the historiography and over the past two or three decades, historians have really illuminated the internal economy of enslaved people, and they've shown how they're participating in the Southern marketplace. Dylan Penningroth's Claims of Kinfolk is my favorite book in that regard. Um, And so I was aware that that was going on, but I never really thought that they were also getting photographs. I still haven't found in the archive a photograph I could confidently say was commissioned by an enslaved person, Mm-hmm. But that being said, uh, written records uh, show it was happening. Um, photographers, memoirs, um, newspapers, and slave narratives, um, all, um, um, once you dive into them, um, show that uh, there were some enslaved people um, who were able to obtain and use photographs. So one of the photographers I write about is John Bear. And John Bear is an itinerant photographer who's basically traveling around the mid-Atlantic in the 1840s, and he's stopping off at different cities and towns for a little while, selling images, like many photographers did in the antebellum era. And Bear talks about how, and this is in 1847 or 1848, don't quote me, 
he stops mm-hmm. off in Winchester, Virginia, and he says he was charging a dollar fifty for photographic portraits and a dollar for enslaved people, and that he reserved Friday for enslaved people to come get their pictures made. And as, as Bear puts it, um, they came in droves on Friday to get their images made. And so I started to come across evidence like this and said, wow, they were getting their photographs made. Of course they were getting their photographs made. Photography was an important means of remembrance. It was an important way to remember loved ones. And so, of course, they're going to want photographs because it's photographs of family members are going to allow them to maintain connections amidst the disruptions wrought by the internal slave trade. And so the chapter is about how photography serves as a means of endurance, as a new mechanism, really, of endurance for enslaved people to maintain those social ties amidst the disruptions of the slave trade and amidst the disruptions wrought by um, when uh, uh, um, fugitives flee. So that's really what it's about. And and really a fascinating and and unexpected finding as you report. A few minutes ago, we were talking about abolitionist use of, of Photographs, particularly the the famous one of, of Gordon, as he's sometimes identified the mm-hmm. the man with the scars on his back, and I, I'm guessing every yeah. listener to the show has seen that photograph. Ken Burns used it; um, it it's very well yeah. known. What uh, I found striking was your observation that this was not the way that abolitionists used photography before the Civil War. They did not publish lots of atrocity photographs. Yeah. And that's the question I want to come back to you with after we take uh, another short break. Uh, why didn't they do that? And if not, how did abolitionists use photography uh, as a, a tool in their uh, in their struggle against slavery? We'll talk about that and more when we come back in just a moment uh, with our guest tonight, Matthew Fox Amato, author of Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the birth of modern visual politics in America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. Voice VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Matthew Fox Amato, author of Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America. We left off with a question of how uh, photography was used against slavery in the years before the war and during the war uh, by abolitionists from the north. It, everybody's seen the photograph of the, the man with the horrible scars on his back, but that's the only photograph most of us have seen of a person visual, visibly uh, damaged by the institution of slavery. Why didn't uh, – and we know that photography was used by subsequent uh, activists and social reformers, Jacob Rees, uh, uh, Dorothea Lange in, in the progressive era in the Great Depression, ph- photographs that reveal how the other half lives, that reveal the, the toll of the Depression. That becomes very common in American politics. Why didn't the abolitionists do so much more of that? It's a really good question, and it's the one I began my study of abolitionist photography with, and I thought, going into my archival research, that if I dug hard enough, I was going to find kind of all manner of atrocity images from the 1840s and 1850s, knowing that the scourge back was produced in 1863, and I didn't find that. I, you know, there, there's one um, early image that abolitionists make in 1845. I write about this. It is taken of um, a white abolitionist's hand. It's called the Branded Hand. Basically, this white abolitionist, Jonathan Walker, um, gets arrested in Florida for trying to help a few fugitive slaves escape. And he gets thrown in jail and um, uh, eventually an SS for slave stealer is branded on his hand. Uh, he eventually makes his way back to Boston, um, where uh, another abolitionist in the circle suggests he go and photograph it as evidence of what the um, slave power had done to him down in Florida. And so you have that kind of early image in 1845, and then the scourge back in 1863, and it was a, it was a real puzzle to me for why there weren't more of them. And you know, um, uh, I, I think one of the things I, I slowly came to realize is that for the fugitive slaves who who make it to the North, 
um, they're, they're not interested in photography to show victimization. So Frederick Douglass, who we now know is the most photographed um, person in 19th century America, and yet all of Douglass's images are of dignified, they're all dignified portraits. Um, so Journer Truth um, also chooses not to photograph her scars from slavery. Um, and so that was a kind of striking insight to me because I think in some ways our impulse in the 21st century is, is to think that photography is used in every way possible to fight injustice. And I think that's a different disposition than one that many um, fugitives had, um, like Douglas, um, who were quite concerned about the power of images to undermine um, perceptions of their humanity. Um, many people have written at this point about um, how, how Douglas is concerned about um, the, the role that um, racial caricature has played um, in shaping ra- racial perceptions of African Americans and sees photography as a tool to fight against uh, that racism. Um, and so he and so many other fugitives, um, when they do pose for photographic portraits, um, are posing to present, um, to underscore their full personhood rather than their former victimhood. So my project um, really um, morphed when I came to that realization. It's uh, one of many fascinating insights in the book. I want to skip ahead to your your last chapter where you talk about photographs during the Civil War because it's Civil War talk radio, and we can't do without that. Um, By the time of the Civil War, the technology of photography is such that uh, it's possible to make multiple copies of a photograph. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Right at the kind of turn of... You know, 1859 is when the carte de visite, which is a French po- process, becomes mm-hmm. popular in America. And that's the first process that is re- really used in mass um, uh, um, that, draw, that uses a negative to make multiple paper copies. Um, and that continues into the 1860s in a few different forms. Now, you, the, the, the gist of your, your chapter on wartime photography is not about the, uh, the famous photographs of bodies on the battlefield and that have been frequently studied and, and discussed by many uh, scholars, but you look at the presence of the freed population in contact with the federal armies. Uh, the same thing that Amy Morrell Taylor looks at in uh, the, her recent book, uh, Embattled, what is it, uh, uh, embattled freedom. Uh, yeah. Do I have the name right? Yes. Um, yeah. Embattled freedom journeys through the civil wars, slave refugee camps. Uh, the, she's looking at this population of, of hundreds of thousands of former slaves living uh, literally mm-hmm. side by side with union soldiers. And you make the argument that we can best understand how these soldiers understood their relationship to these uh, refugees in their midst less by reading their letters, although we can do that, than by looking at the photographs that they take of of or with these people. Uh, so what do we learn from these photographs? So I think that, first, I, I think there is a lot we can learn from the written sources. I never mm-hmm. mean or try to diminish the value of what we can learn in a letter. 
That being said, you know, um, the photographs they're producing are tremendously consequential because these aren't simply photographs that are being circulated from the war front to the home front. Uh, Many of these photographs are being circulated in mass. Um, by kind of an, an uh, E.T. Anthony, who's a kind of a big, big industrial hub of photography in New York, um, who's working with folks like Gardner, Brady, Timothy O'Sullivan, and many other um, uh, less uh, well-known photographers. Um, uh, but, but part of my point is that the soldiers are playing an important role in the production of these images that many people see. And so that's why I think photography is important, is because they're not private uh, images, um, or they're not simply private images. These are also Mm -hmm. public images during the war. And what is so striking to me is, first off, you know, we, we have this moment in which we have thousands of fugitives entering camps. Um, we have thousands of northerners coming south, uh, and, you know, these camps become these sort of haphazard biracial communities. And then there are all these photographers kind of milling about around mm-hmm. the camps. And my argument is that photography becomes a way for northern whites to concretize a vision of race, or more specifically racial hierarchy, in a moment of intense anxiety and flux, in a moment when it's not clear what the state of race relations will look like in the future, um, in a moment when people are wondering what America uh, would and will look like um, if slavery falls. Um, and so there, um, there's, you know, there are all these, I think, questions being asked, and photography is a way for not just the photographers, but also the soldiers to offer an answer to that. So an example I write about, uh, there is a um, northern white soldier named Charles Two, and he is uh, writing uh, constantly back to his wife. And one day he writes to her and says, you know, um, I, you know in camp I, I, I called out, um, um, I'm forgetting his name, but he was uh, a fugitive slave who had been um, living in the camp. I called him out of the tent, and I told him to sit at my feet. And I had the photograph taken. Um, and he sends the photograph back home to his family. Um, that is a, an example of a private image. Uh, but it's an example also of the ways in which, you know, in that moment, he is um, visualizing, he's concretizing a, um, a, a narrative of, about racial hierarchy and having the fugitive um, slave actually sit at his feet for a photograph. Um, And that's one of the many kind of subordinating poses you see in these Union Army camps. Um, uh, And it's usually uh, black um, men, um, sometimes boys, um, sitting at white soldiers' feet, um, often serving them things, the Alexander Gardner image, uh, What Do I Want? John Henry is the famous example of that. But it's actually just one piece of a broader photographic landscape of racial subordination. Um, And, you know, my basic point is that these are concretizing racial hierarchy at a moment of intense flux. I I found that really fascinating because there were so many pictures that were familiar uh, and, and 
in all of them, as you, you suggest, the if there's an African-American character in the photograph of white soldiers, he's either sitting at the ground when they are sitting on chairs or standing, or he's clearly a servant holding a, a, you know, a bowl or a pitcher of some sort, always in a subordinate role. Then I thought, well, aren't there pictures of black soldiers? There's, there's a famous photo of Company mm-hmm. E, the 4th USCT. Everybody has seen that sure. line of, of black men with muskets looking intimidating mm-hmm. and military and martial. And then I think, okay, what's the next image like that? And I can't think of another one. And, and if you yeah. contrast photography from the Vietnam era, there are not that that was an oasis of, of, of racial harmony by any means, uh, but there are so many photographs of black and white soldiers more or less portrayed equally in terms of their equipment, their poses, their 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 facial expressions, uh, all in a bad place, but they're all together equal in the bad place. And all the Civil War photographs that you show, and all the ones I can think of that show soldiers and refugees, show this very clear subordination. Yeah, and, and my point is not to say that the Civil War photographic landscape is monolithic, it certainly mm-hmm. isn't. There are um, undoubtedly um, a variety of images, uh, including those images that are um, stressing um, um, black manhood, uh, dignity, um, patriotism. Um, um, but um, the more and more you look in the archives, the more and more images of subordination you find. And these are at the Library of Congress. Um, I did quite a, re- a bit of research at uh, Yale in the Beinecke Library, and there are a few of them there, uh, as well as a few other archives that I can't think of off the top of my head. Um, so the, the, what, what eventually emerged for me is that, you know, I'm always trying to think here, because I'm dealing with lots of images rather than just studying a few important ones, which I think a lot of people before me have done, mm-hmm. trying to think about what was the mainstream um, visual formula or visual form, what were the mainstream visual formulas for depicting race in this moment? And then what formulas were on the margins? And my point is that this image of black subordination is the mainstream at this time. And it, it, it really is. Sadly, uh, we are out of time already. This, this book has a lot of stimulating things in it. Um, among other things, you point out that in, in other imagery, in, in, in uh, the Courier and Ives uh, engravings and so on, you see plenty of images of black mm-hmm. heroism, uh, but yep. those can't be captured in photographs. Unfortunately, we're, we're, we're out of time. Listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America uh, for an eye-opening look at pictures we thought we already knew. Uh, the author is Matthew Fox Amato, who's been our guest tonight. Matt, thanks so much for being on the show. You know, I'm really... Just so glad I got the opportunity to talk to your listeners. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.